Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview by Chris Creighton Kelly of Aruna Srivastava. My name is Isabel Mahalski, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Guyanai First Nations, as well as the Tsutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Beresspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This interview was recorded during a Tea House Symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of color to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they have experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Chris Creighton Kelly is an interdisciplinary artist, writer, and cultural critic born in the United Kingdom with South Asian British roots. Aruna Srivastava is an associate professor at the University of Calgary, where she also serves as a special advisor for diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this interview, Chris and Aruna discuss the importance of her anti-racist work inside institutions, wonder what a world without institutions would look like, and propose that the concept of precarity needs to be examined in the context of race. My name is Chris Creighton-Kelly, and I'm here to interview Aruna Srivastava. And my first question to Aruna would be to just ask her in her own way to define or describe or identify who she is. That's actually a tougher question than I thought it would be, and you already told me you were going to ask me that. (laughs) Um, So I think what I would do is identify myself in terms of history and race and ethnicity first. Um, I, uh, I identify as mixed, mixed race, South Asian. Uh, my, mother, my mother was Scottish. My father is Indian from India. Um, and they, they met in Scotland when he was the first a member of his family to leave India to do a, a PhD in engineering. So we're a mixed race family and we immigrated to uh, Canada as part of the big brain drain from from Europe and other places to Canada mm-hmm. in the late 60s. I also identify as a a woman. I identify as straight. I identify, too, as as someone who, well, there's all sorts of ways um, that are important. I identify as someone who has invisible disabilities, and I've had them all my life, Mm -hmm. um, and, and many of them as a, uh, a, dance, a dancer manqué. Uh, that, that is the career I would have loved to have. Um, uh, ex-theater person and someone who is now uh, <clears throat> and has for a long time been uh, a teacher and a slightly reluctant academic 
in terms of uh, the, the institutional aspects of that, but certainly someone who, who I, I would identify myself as an intellectual, for sure. Um, I've been living here on Treaty 7 territory for 27 years and grew up on the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory um, after we immigrated. Mm. So basically from southwestern Ontario to Calgary by way of Vancouver, Musqueam Territory. Um, I think of myself as an activist, but I don't know if I'm a very good activist. So a lot of the, the work that many of us have done um, yourself and so many of the people at this gathering, have, has a lot of that work has really influenced me, but I, I sometimes see the failures of activism. Yeah, the failures of activism. You could write a book on that. Mm. Um, you said a lot of things there, and the first thing that comes to my mind is just watching you uh, struggle would be the wrong word, but hesitate to say, um, you know, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. It just shows the incredible complexity. Uh, one of the things that still um, strikes me and amazes me, and it's, it's done this since I was a little boy, since as long as I could remember, is how each person is a kind of walking universe of memories, of thoughts, of identities, uh, and how complex we all are. And that's sometimes not understood by the powers, or not sometimes, frequently not understood. And as these various uh, hesitate again to use the word post-colonial, but the, the situation we're in today, as these voices are speaking, some of them for the first time in history, it's creating an amazing cacophony of stories coming out. That's just an observation, it's not a question. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, um, Aruna, what do you think is the most important work that you've produced in your own estimation? And I invite you in answering it, to critique that, if you want. You already kind of did that by critiquing your whether or not you're an, um, an activist or not. So I've heard you talk about the Academy, which is obviously where you've done a lot of strong work, um, but I've also heard you critique the Academy. So, um, so I, w I would critique... Well, let's first of all find out the most important work. I don't, it needs I, to be uh, okay. lauded, you know? It has to be. I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, okay, I'll answer it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, to, I have two provisional answers. Okay. One is I think my most important work in progress has been as a teacher, both inside the academy and outside mm, of it. So mm. in terms of pedagogical work that I've done in, in anti-racism work in various communities, um, sometimes in the context of family as well. Um, mm. I think of my, my stepkids and, and other relations where I think I've actually done really important and sometimes very difficult mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. At the university, the work has been hard in the sense that it has not been rewarded, and I have, I've made active decisions not to seek those rewards. And that's why some of my, um, my perplexity, uh, I'm quite perplexed at why it is or how it is we get so inculcated into that reward system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The kind of, we have to do, we have to do that, we have to do that. At, at some point, I think I made a, a, a really conscious decision that there were certain kinds of work that I wanted to do and that were, were rewarding for me. Um, a lot of that is the teaching. In terms of actual work... Um, just to interrupt you for just five okay. seconds, one of the things that's been repeated at this mm -hmm. gathering is this phrase, it's the work that does the work. Mm -hmm. And so to, to frame it that way rather than it's the reward that does the work mm -hmm. or the recognition that does that's the work, right? Doing the work is its own reward in a way. It is, and it is, as people have, have said, it's... It's exhausting and um, it's labor intensive in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. And um, our discussion yesterday about uh, accommodations, which I found a bit of a disturbing discussion in all sorts of ways, but still there, there, there is that sense of how, how um, conflictual mm. 
the how conflictual this work can be. Um, the work in in the academy is that work in the academy. Okay. Uh, I, I mean pedagogical right. work in the okay. widest sense. So if I'm sitting on a committee when we're trying to decide who our new vice provost of Indigenous engagement is going to be, part of the work that I'm engaged in is an activist project of speaking up against. Yes. In that case, it was power. Okay. Um, because that I've been asked to do that. It's, they want me on that committee to do that. Um, and uh, Or in the classroom, um, when, when I'm teaching in particular ways that students sometimes perceive to be weird, mm. um, there's a project behind that, mm -hmm. not always successful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of the ways in which people ask, ask that question about my work around creative practice. So I, I thought a lot about this question in terms of um, the way back to the um, Internation Residency years ago in Banff that, that I didn't... A residency that brought together different artists from different racial and cultural communities, uh, hence called Intranation. Yeah. But it was focused on art. It was focused on art. And so there were... There were couple of us who felt a little, uh, even people who, who had creative practices like uh, writing and so forth, uh, who felt a, a little outside of that institution. Um, and I created work I around, I did, created that I work. And it's, I still... Amina still talks about does it. Does she? Yeah. And, and we're still working around, like we still, I still work in, in that particular practice, which is a textile project of, of braiding. Um, so I, I thought back to that and thought that is probably in some ways something I can point to as a work that I've produced because it was a community and collaborative um, practice that, act, that has almost stood the test of time. It, it, it is, it's up in various people's spaces, yeah, cool. and I still ask my students to do to contribute mm -hmm. to the project mm -hmm. at the end of a course, for instance, if they wish to, um, and talk about what theoretically the the politically the braiding project was was for, and about and it also was part of the textile project that Sharon Prue Turner, um, who who was a, um, a Métis uh, elder and and writer. Um, was doing so we shared that studio space Sharon and I and did a lot of work around in, uh, bringing people into that um, into that textile studio and sharing a kind of women's space of um, sewing and, mm -hmm, and, yeah. and braiding and so forth mm -hmm. um, but to, to answer that question, Sort of more truthfully, I would I would have to say, pedagogy in, in the wide, widest sense. Okay. What I what I, because for me it's been a sort of ongoing relational practice. I found it interesting too that in your response to, what is the most important work you've produced in your own estimation, and you started talking about pedagogy in the broad sense. I was listening carefully, and then without any prompting from me, you started talking about art practice <laughs> and and intronation. So. Maybe I want to just probe that a little bit because I know that you have you shared with me certain anxieties about being caused being called an artist, um, and yet you, by your own definition, you're doing creative work, which I believe to be true. So, what is that boundary about? Is that, is that something about like, well, I do creative work, but I'm too anxious to be called an artist, or what? What is that about? I think it's about the same thing when, when people feel that they're not real academics. Uh -huh, I think okay. it's the same thing around training. Um, I, I certainly see it uh, in, in our department of English here at the University of Calgary. One of the things that, and we have a creative writing uh, program within our department, right. it's very clear that we draw boundaries uh -huh. about training. You know, you can't just be a creative writer. Because you say you are. Because you say you are, which I think is no nonsense, really. But there is something to be said for um, working with other artists, and and f something to be said for for 
learning what training is about, mm -hmm. I suppose. And studying other artists. And studying yeah. other artists. Yeah. Um, but I do have a lot, many issues, particularly in, in the regular academic disciplines with, with the, the boundary setting and the assumptions that the discipline is the be-all and the end-all, mm -hmm. you know, the gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the kinds of questions, certainly I've, I was asked this at, at residencies that, uh, that I participated in, um, the, which start with usually what is your practice, and then how did you come to your practice? What mm -hmm. is your training? Mm -hmm. That's the next question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you do when, when confronted with that? Do you deconstruct the idea of training or...? Usually not. Mm -hmm. I, th I think I think it. I usually say I am. Um, I wouldn't use the word amateur, but that's usually what I'm mm -hmm. implying, mm -hmm. that I'm not a trained artist. Mm, okay. Uh -huh. Amateur um, is a loaded word too. Yeah. Yeah. These the second part of this is to talk about why you do this work, and in some ways it might be an even more important question than what is the work. Um, so maybe I'll ask it this way, knowing you as little as I know you and as well as I know you at the same time. What, what was the genesis of wanting to do uh, anti-racist work for you? Maybe go back to your, like, when you were still a student in the Canadian academic context um, and you studied uh, literature. W was that the genesis of it? Was it around feminism? Was it around, like, what, what brought you to this moment where you went, you know what, I've got to do anti-racist work in yeah. these institutions because yeah. they're racist. Yeah. That's actually a really good question because it, I came to it quite suddenly. Uh -huh. um, and I, I came into feminism fairly early on in my university career mm -hmm. and was passionate about it. Still and as a student. As a student, as an undergraduate okay. student. Um, and certainly was raised in a family, in a nuclear family, as an immigrant family. We had no other family here. Okay. Was certainly raised in a very liberal, social, social justice-oriented kind of family uh, with a father who was an academic and so forth. So that had something to do with it. But in, as an undergrad studying um, English, uh, I s suddenly encountered all these fairly radical women mm. um, who, who taught, me a, uh, taught me another perspective and ideology, which was feminism, and I identified strongly mm. with it. Um, when I went to do my PhD, which was a different institution, I was at McMaster, uh, post post-colonialism still hadn't been invented. I'm, you know, I'm fairly old. Um, and, but I discovered a whole area of literature that was about the globe. And I had a, a person I worked with, my supervisor. The Globe and Mail, you mean? No, no, it was, <laughs> it was called international <laughs> literature, um, commonwealth literature, in fact. Right. And my supervisor was someone who uh, was quite conservative in some ways. He was he was a, a from Pakistan originally, the only brown man in a, a completely white mm -hmm. uh, department. But he he taught me that I need to know my history. Mm -hmm. And so he mm -hmm. said, um, if you're going to do this project on the partition of India and literature about it, then you need to learn about yeah. the history of partition yeah. of India from non-white people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I did, and it was mind-blowing. I hadn't learned that, say, from my father or my mother. Um, so I did a post essentially what was a post-colonial literary project, and then I graduated. Mm. I got a postdoc. I came out to, went out west to UBC, discovered the, the post-colonial scholarship, and I discovered the Vancouver Co Coalition for Local, local, color. local, co yeah. local color, where people were doing activist anti-racism work. And it connected to everything I was doing in terms of my literary scholarship. But then I thought, this is... Um, this is this is really connects to my identity and my experiences. I was making sense of the my experiences of racism, particularly in the academy, at, you know, the horrible experiences of my PhD defense and that I'm kind sure. of thing. And I discovered anti-racism there, 
and then took it back to my alma mater and gave a speech. It was a very single moment for me. I gave a speech at McMaster as a, someone who'd graduated um, with my PhD, and I said, look around you. It was a 300 people or something. Look around you. I don't see any brown faces here. And it was a shocking experience. Yeah. So, you know, I, was, I was meant to be thankful to yeah. them. Um, and then, then I just started learning yeah. how to do anti-racism okay. work. So it was Vancouver that did uh -huh. it. We're talking a period of the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things you've talked about, we've talked about together, is this notion of the relationship between these institutions. Mm -hmm. um, I've had some experience with academe, but it's more limited compared to yours. But I have worked in, in uh, the arts institutions and cultural institutions of Canada. And one way of looking at that is that there are communities uh, feminist communities, communities of color in the arts, queer communities in the arts, the mad arts now are taking a certain kind of prominence in the discourse. Um, and then there's institutions, and these things are separate entities. Um, the one fights against the other, one resists the other, and the other excludes the other. And I think that um, historically that's maybe a, mis a mistake to understand it that way. Um, and that you have to look at that they're part of the same system. But it's still worth looking at what goes on in communities, why do communities function the way they do with very limited resources most of the time, and how it is that they put um, pressure on systems that they have to deal with. It's worth looking at inside the institutions to see how people who are trying to make changes within the institutions succeed or more likely don't succeed. It's interesting to look at the co-optation. Uh, Richard uh, Fung was just talking about that earlier today, about how activist work has been co-opted into institutions. It's worth looking at the space in between. How does one negotiate going back and forth? Uh, what our colleague Franz Trepanier calls the, the passer, the going back and forth. What is it like to take information from one to the other and then back again? But there's also a fourth space which I think is worth asking you questions about, which is some kind of, uh, it's an imaginary space. It's a utopic space, if you will. I don't mind someone critiquing me in that way. But I think it's, a, it's important to talk about it, but to talk about it always in the frame of the other three, not just to kind of like invent an imaginary space. So you invent an imaginary space while it still has connection to the spaces that exist. And that space would be, what if we didn't have institutions? Or maybe more accurately, what if we had different kinds of institutions? So they wouldn't even really be institutions. Um, and, and as you know, especially in academia, you know more than I do, getting a sense of what those might look like. Or maybe I'm, no, maybe I'm even asking the wrong question there because I'm assuming that there's, what would a world without institutions look like? Hmm. Just pretend it's the 60s. <laughs> Just pretend it's the 60s. I was a little young in the 60s. Um, what would a world without institutions look like? I'm not sure it would be a particularly functional okay. world. Um, and, of course, it does depend on how, how we define institutions. So I define institutions even at a very, very micro level. As soon as there, there are structures and as soon as people, as people tend to do, are, I was going to say, are jostling for power. I was thinking okay. of something that Christos was saying yesterday. Um, or as soon as there are systems of privilege, even if they're not act, people aren't e exactly jostling for power, as soon as people are fearful, mm -hmm. um, w and uh, as, a, as a teacher, one of the things that I, I've n never been able to figure out is how to um, assist in creating safety mm. so that people are less fearful. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think institutions exist be because of power and all the things that we know. Mm -hmm. But I think they also exist because people are fearful. Mm -hmm. um, but is the fear, that's an important point, mm -hmm. I really think it's an important, is the fear preeminent to the institution or does the institution help to create some of that fear because to your very astute definition I would add um, there are spaces where people have the have power as you correctly mm -hmm. said 
but that they have power over, that they can exert that power and, and which is really important to understand, that act of inserting, uh, sorry, not asserting, uh, taking the power over others, exercising the power, is sanctioned by the bureaucracy of the institution. That's how men can get away with sexual harassment, mm-hmm. even though there's sexual harassment guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what am I getting at here? So, what does that look like? Um, is okay. So maybe no, maybe a more uh, epistemological question would be to say so. Then they're not really reformable by the way you're talking about them. So I I think I think smaller ones possibly are. Um, so when I think of institutions like. Um, uh, there's an organization here in Calgary called Community Wise, which mm-hmm. is an umbrella organization for small, all sorts of small organizations. Okay. Um, nonprofits. They're all nonprofits, okay. and so is Community Wise. So it, it, it's the board for um, all these nonprofit organizations, which have really very little to do with each other. It okay. can, you know, filmmakers and Aboriginal youth and a barter society and, you know, those kinds of so things. So it's like the United Way for Alternative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, community-wise, and each of those mint small organizations are their own institutions. And I think a lot of us don't think of that kind of work as institutions. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, but... But, but anyway, I, go on. But. So in, in, in the, they've been doing a project called anti, uh, race, Anti-Racist Organizational Change um, and having a really difficult time with it, partly because of their, their member organizations are so atomized. But a lot of them are immigrant organizations, mm. people of mm. color, mm-hmm. BIPOC, and all that sort of stuff, and they need to do it. And... You, you see in a small way it, it happening with community, community-wise exactly what happens at mm-hmm, a university mm-hmm, or exactly what happens in a, um, exactly what happened at ANPAC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you want to tell people what ANPAC <laughs> was? Uh, it was the Association of uh, National Nonprofit Artist-Run Center. That was an institution. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to start a semantic thing okay. here in the middle of this conversation, but yeah, I know in a certain way, I would I would agree. But I do think it's important to maintain a distinction between an organization mm-hmm. where you're absolutely correct to suggest that some of those problems are replicated. I don't want to be mm-hmm. naive about that, and an institution because I think for me, the difference is scale. Number one, and in organizations, the kinds you were mm-hmm. just talking about, including ANPAC. Um, and as you know, uh, those of us that are old enough to remember, ANPAC blew apart mm. precisely because it was an organization. I, I don't know of too many institutions that have blown apart. They've had their mm. problems, but they they stay because they have buildings, they have resources, they have huge amounts of money, they have the donor class of Canada supporting them. So it, it may be somewhat semantic for me to insist upon a cleavage between um, you know, well, this is an organization, this is mm. an institution. That may be a kind of pointless conversation, but but still, at some point, I think there are organizations that are still based more or less, some more than others, in communities that have boards of directors that can be affected by communities, mm-hmm. that have a, a fluidity between a community member and, hey, what do you do? Why don't you come and sit on a committee? And that, you know, that kind of, the kinds of organizations that we work with in primary colors. Mm-hmm. Artist-run centers, small theater groups, indigenous mm-hmm. organizations, et cetera, et cetera. And organizations like the University of Calgary, where we're doing this interview today, or mm-hmm. the Canada Council for the Arts. Um, and it's precise. And I guess the other component of these institutions is they have a bureaucracy. They have a structure, a hierarchy, um, which is not to say, as you correctly pointed out, that some of the problems don't get mirrored. Of course they do, and that has to do with capitalism and the way we structure hierarchies and mm-hmm. patriarchy and homof- all, all mm-hmm. of these things. But I, I think there might be a utility in, in making two categories there. And if we just put it all together as, oh, well, they're institutions, as you mm-hmm. called them a minute ago, well, then what? What's, well, yeah. what's the value of doing that? And Well, I think the, the, one of the values is, you know, maybe using different words might be one, one way to do it. But one of the values is at least looking at how institutional thinking um, permeates c- permeates, oh, permeates absolutely. everything. absolutely. Yeah. So that if we're worried in, you know, I used to work in uh, a lot of the nonprofit arts um, um, organizations here in Calgary and in Vancouver, and how institutional thinking permeated oh, our, our thinking yeah. about funding. For or example, thinking about you know diversity and race yeah, yeah, and yeah. so forth. Um, and 
that uh, as a younger person that really really surprised me mm. i had a sort of I, I an idealistic notion as i did a bit about the academy in, initially that that somehow people didn't see themselves implicated in these right. larger right. ideological structures right. like racism yeah. right. or homophobia well if that's your point aruna yeah. i completely agree yeah. with you yeah I so uh, and and i think we when when we get embroiled in these um, discussions about the the ways in which larger governmental organizations or or academic institutions and so forth um, make us afraid. Uh, uh, sometimes we we need to recognize either the balance of the other kinds of organizations or that um, that we have some agency in the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that's the difference, the the dis- distinction I w- I would make. Okay, that's an important distinction, yeah. but your but nevertheless your point is very well taken, and, and I believe you're right about that. And actually, if you look at the Canadian uh, state and its um, ability to bureaucratize society, um, it's it's quite strong. And if you think about that in terms of other places in the world, I mean, you know, I'm not the first person to point out that. Artists in Canada are highly bureaucratized, and they all, you know, follow the Canada Council mm-hmm. ways of doing things, and so on and so forth. And that the state is making or breaking certain people's careers. So, you have to, to some extent, play along with that. I, just before yeah. the interview started, I mentioned to Aruna a quote uh, by Gatry Spivak, um, which I can't remember the exact words, and I apologize for butchering it. But basically, the point she's trying to make is that there's really no place in the in the North American context, or the British perspective, I think she was speaking of, where you can stand outside the institution. The institution will frame you no matter what. The framing is just a matter of how you look at it. And Aruna was talking yesterday about how, for example, the medical institutions, the hospitals, and the whole medical infrastructure of our country, how it frames people. And that might be a good way <laughs> to move to something that I did want to ask you that I know is very important to you. Um, one of the questions on my little prompt sheet says, has your practice, the things you've talked about and slightly critiqued, if we have time we can go back to more of a critique, changed with changes in your body? If that practice has changed, then how? And if it hasn't, I think in your case it has, but if it hasn't, or the ways in which it hasn't, how do you manage to maintain the practice in the face of those uh, changes in your body she euphemistically (laughs) writes here um my my work my all of my works um so my my teaching and and my the things that i write and the things that i do in general my just my labor to have been informed from from the outset by by illness so for example, I, I, I could not continue a career in dance um, be, because uh, I have epilepsy. And later on, when I, I um, was diagnosed as having type 1 diabetes, um, someone actually told me, this was a, a nasty, bad academic man, um, that with, with the diabetes diagnosis, it was almost like all these women who decided that they were going to get pregnant. Um, whoa, 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 hold on. Sorry. I, I, he, I lost you there. <laughs> uh, well, it, it wasn't a logical connection okay. at all. Um, and what, what he suggested was that uh, he was actually the graduate program director of my institution at the time, that maybe I, sh- I should just quit academia. I couldn't be ill and, and, teach. and be an academic. Likewise, if you're pregnant, you can't teach. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, now I'm so this so was a, this a not so hidden form of misogyny. Yes, and saying. and that these were the days when that form of misogyny was um, certainly expressed constantly mm-hmm. and all the time. Um, and we're making America great again. It's coming <laughs> back. It's coming back. <laughs> um, so I would say one of the, I made I made some very clear decisions um, that and this was informed by theory. This was informed by feminism. It was informed by anti-racism and so forth that it was really important to mentor and disclose um, being ill, um, chronically ill, to people 
particularly students, but in community as well, that it was important to do that. Okay. So, and a lot of my writing and a lot of my think theoretical thinking, I would never got got interested in critical theory if it hadn't been that I felt that I lived it. Mm. So, you know, I was reading mm. all, all of mm. these uh, European theorists, Derrida, and uh, particularly the ones who theorized about language and perception and so forth. And I thought some of them are wrong <laughs> and some of them are right. Uh -huh. You know, we, we, we don't have wholeness right. because I know what that feels like. Right. I and think that, of Foucault when, when you say that. Yeah. Actually, yeah. And so this notion of, um, of the unitary self, which, which I was just learning about um, when I was diagnosed with diabetes, but I had, I, I, I've been, um, I've had seizure disorder since I was 12 years old. I, I know is a lived experience. And it, it, I thought this is important to peop for people who've n never questioned right. their bodies. Right. <clears throat> now that I, um, I have a third diagnosed illness to contend with, <clears throat> uh, as I said yesterday, those are the things that I write about creatively uh, and, and integrate a bit into my critical, my uh, academic work. Um, but all of those illnesses are taking their toll now. Mm -hmm. I'm older, mm -hmm. and um, the the I'm not really sure how to deal with that as an activist, partly because of the energy. Um, and it's a it's a very in terms of practice, in terms of what to do, what to say, what to write, and how to teach, for instance, even how to engage in community work and and really work in relation with people. Being ill is very difficult. It's very difficult to engage in, in all of those practices. Right. Um, and I was talking to someone this morning about how isolating it is and how to work against that isolation um, because I think it's fundamentally misunderstood, mm -hmm. even by the number of people who experience mm -hmm, illness, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, as a long-term thing. Um, so I, I, I have worked on campus and other places with, um, with and against the sort of institution of medicine, medicalization, uh, and I think that might be my next. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking that. Actually. That might be the next thing I, I need to, to do. Um, but it is exhausting, yeah, you know. I think yeah. I've done the yeah. anti-racism and I've yeah. done the yeah. feminism, yeah. and I'm s that still needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and my well, own. We always have to remember, though, that we're not the only ones doing. We're not it. the only <laughs> ones doing it. However, sometimes I think uh, we think we collectively. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm doing the work, and I got to keep doing the work. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to die, and then what's yeah. going to happen? You know? Yeah. And the other thing I would say is that. Um, there may be models out there. I, 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 when you spoke mm -hmm. like that and talked about, uh, you know, you, first of all, yourself and other mm -hmm. people like you and figuring out a way to do work, um, immediately my mind went to what happened during the AIDS crisis. I mean, mm -hmm. we're still in the AIDS crisis, mm -hmm. but the, the, the most horrific part of the AIDS crisis when nobody was paying attention. And gay men especially, mm -hmm. but also lesbians and other people had to rally around the fact that a community was dying mm -hmm. and nobody seemed to give a shit and and they worked in community to mm -hmm. care for yeah. one another to care for their brothers and sometimes sisters and so there are models there's yeah. ways to understand how to do that without either being ignored by institutions like dismissed mm -hmm. or actively fought against i mean it mm -hmm. isn't it isn't necessarily an institutional struggle it's a way of like how can we understand this so we can take care of one another? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, uh, one of the things that probably has changed about my thinking about my work, my relationship to my work, is that I'm getting much more impatient mm. with the, all of the discourses of wellness. Mm. Um, I, I think it's a bad word. Yeah, I do too. And that what we do, I mean, the, the academic institutions are, are deeply unhealthy places right. anyway. But it's another one of those normative words, right? Yeah. That's a, and that your goal is to be well. Yeah. Well, what, and if, what if you can't be well? What if you can't be well? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, doctors are some of the worst for it. 
But even within the context of other, other institutional practices, there is this kind of assumption that all of us are on a level playing field. Right. It works like ra- right. the same way that race and gender do. Right. Um, and that all you need to do is go run. Yeah. Or, you know, eat cycle, healthily, eat healthily yeah. cycle on your yeah. treadmill, whatever it is that you uh, cycle on your bicycle. Um, and, and that that's really the answer yeah. to, to all of the ills of everyone, but especially those of us who have sort of um, disabilities and illnesses. I'm not the first person to suggest this by any means, but as the baby boomers, of which both you and I are, move through like, you know, the, the animal in the snake, the, the snake mm-hmm. and it's moving towards the tail now, do you think that's going to, the other day I was joking with a friend of mine because we were in a grocery store and there was a woman, quite insistent, senior, more senior than I am, uh, in one of those scooter things, mm-hmm. and like insisting that she have space, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But the joke then became, well, what are we going to do in 10 years when everybody's on a goddamn scooter? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> God, the grocery store's really ready for that. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that um, is the discursive frame and at the same time the community care, the real actual material work that you're talking about, going to come more to the fore as that bulge. There's a lot of talk, as there is about wellness, and I totally understand Mm -hmm. your critique of that. There's also a lot of talk about aging and aging Mm -hmm. well and, you know, the the medicine, the medical system is going to be in collapse because there's going to be too many seniors. And Mm -hmm. does that link in at all to what you're talking about? Will Will that aid the dilemma that you find yourself in? I, I th- I'm not sure. I think yeah. it's one of my large fears uh, about uh, about aging and, and not aging as a, a in a healthy body. Okay. Although I don't, th- I, I think one of the things we don't discuss is the fact that I don't like the aging well thing either. Okay. Um, is is that so many of us, whether we're aging or not? Where's <laughs> uh, the or not part? Uh, <laughs> we are aging. We are. You and I might be, <laughs> yeah. uh, but our our. Are kind of not well, mm. um, so, but, and I, I think, I think culturally we're going to have to deal with, um, with all those of us who are baby boomers and survive to tell the tale, um, and, and we also have to deal culturally. I think this is where arts and writing can really help, uh, literature and the study of it can really help, is for us to come to terms with. Um, a kind of very sh- these shifting cultural perspectives, in- including ageism. You know, okay. I I, th- I think ageism around. I've been thinking about my. We've talked a lot about dementia actually in this. Uh, yeah, in this, um, yeah. And my fa- my father has uh, has dementia, yeah. and because of various traumas in our family, because of cultural stuff around um, uh, how how in India he he would be taken care of. We, we, uh, he's in a dementia care facility, um, and all of that kind of s- stuff. We've, we've had, as, as the three remaining siblings, our family has diminished mm-hmm. a lot um, because of these illnesses. Right. Um, one of the things that really engages us as uh, my two other uh, siblings is that h- how do we, we can't care for him well. Um, and I I worry about that a lot. It, it, even when Fred was talking about dementia, that mm-hmm. sort of sense of fear of, mm-hmm, of those mm-hmm. kinds of illnesses mm-hmm. and and what happens to to your body. Um, and one of the things I I have gotten into frantic arguments with um, some younger able-bodied folk, apparently healthy folk, about precarity. Mm because there is a important discussions about precarity, mm-hmm. um, especially amongst younger folk. Mm-hmm. And they have criticized me. Because you've got privilege. Because I've got privilege yeah. and I rely on the precarious professions. Uh-huh. And I think there's a long, a good discussion to be had about that. Um, because I do rely on the precarious professions. You know, if I'm going to do online shopping mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. get food, brought in for me or um, delivered my drugs delivered to me or um, use Uber, you know, those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, no, I'm listening carefully. And all um, the care workers that take care of your dad, too. Yeah. All of that mm-hmm. is is a reliance on of the aging and mm-hmm. ill 
on the precarious mm-hmm. professions. And I think it's going to happen. We'll see it in academia mm-hmm. as well. We have seen it all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it elides the fact, and maybe that needs to be brought into mm-hmm. the conversation as well, that as we age, and specifically a person like you who has real illnesses, mm-hmm. you're going to be in a precarious position too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is this whole thing, and we were talking about it, about finding ways for people to connect to see the contradictions in the systems that we're living in. And while I totally respect millennials, it's mostly millennials that talk about this precarity, and they hurl rocks at us because mm-hmm. we're, I mean, it's ridiculous. I still live in a precarious <laughs> yeah. reality, uh, but somehow I'm established, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm established on the basis that I'm older. That seems mm-hmm. to be all there is to it, yeah. and that I co-own a house. Um, and yet, And yet there's precarity throughout. There is, yeah. You know, and, and the, I mean, we're going off on tangents far away from mm-hmm. the questions, but because of the grotesque inequality and how that's, who, who's not in a precarious situation? Mm-hmm. The ultra-rich, the powerful, uh, people, I don't know, the, the managerial class, I guess. Mm-hmm. Everybody else in some way or another, and especially those of us that are aging. And this is not to discount how millennials live. I have a, you know, kids that are Mm. living that right now so it's real it's definitely real and they're right to point to your dependence on that Mm -hmm. but i don't i don't think it's just that it's it's more complex than that yeah and and i do think the precarity you know the the notion of precarity has to be thought of in terms of um or or analyzed in terms of um race and migration and all of those kinds of things um and and discussed, you know that. So th- that uh, for me, that p- part of I, I one of the things that's changed in my pedagogy or my teaching, in terms of what I we talk about in class, is precarity. I talk mm. I talk to students mm. who may may or may not go out into into academia, but they go, they're certainly going out into various professions. Um, about how precarious they feel, and. S- and then realize some realize that some of that precarity, the precariousness they feel, is 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 around privilege, is mm-hmm. is around mm-hmm. the, the totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And and we you know, it I haven't done my research on this and um because really what I w- want to do is is emphasize relationship and teach around indigeneity and race. So that's that's my focus. But um and that makes them feel increasingly emotionally precarious mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm contributing to that. <laughs> well, you're contributing, but I, I would say that you're unearthing it. Mm-hmm. And by unearthing it, that's a process that leads to an understanding. And one of the ways when we meet around primary colors issues is to talk about precarity and scarcity specifically yeah. in relationship to abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something I've learned from indigenous people is to always imagine um, that abundance is there. It's yeah. right there, and it's just a question of how you live. Yeah. Now, I know that sounds kind of privileged, and it doesn't take into account the real material conditions of refugees and you know women mm. that are living in battered. I mean, it's important, very important to acknowledge that and, and to say that. But at the same time, it's precarity in relationship to what? There's plenty of people on this planet who are living much, much more precarious lives than any one of us, mm. any one of our younger millennial colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so privilege is also a relative thing. And I, I always try to remember that yeah. when people start whining to me about, you know, I can't pay the rent. Well, okay, but at least you've got a place to live and you've got a medical system that more or less supports you and your country's not at war and, uh, you know, you're, you're not in danger of losing your family and uh, people are not mutilating your body and mm-hmm. I mean you know like it's it's not it's not a way of trying to say that everyone has privilege or that that's mm-hmm. not what I'm trying to do here but just to look at the relationship between scarcity and abundance and likewise in the art world because yes we the arts needs more funding and all artists need more support absolutely but relatively it's it's, it's you know not quite sure what the point is here, other than to say that when I hear you talk about precarity being linked to privilege, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that's the way I, it comes across sometimes when I say these things that I'm saying, 
we're super lucky to be in Canada and stop complaining, man. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I am saying that we have certain kind of privileges by living where we do. That's all. And, yeah. really and I think uh, yeah, that I think that's why <clears throat> some of us get impatient with the the discussion of institutional life. Yeah. Being so um, privileged, s s you know, it, and institutional life is difficult. Yeah. But to to focus on it, I mean, it, and obviously, peop many people f feel it really hard. I mean, it, it, it is it's an enormous amount of emotional labor. And the have-tos are, they're there, they're real. Mm -hmm. um, but That's why I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, they're, but they're also not real at the same time. Yeah. You know, I, um, and, I, and I don't know how to, I've never known, part of my work, all of my adult life anyway, has been trying to figure out what are the have-tos. Mm -hmm. Therapy has helped a lot. Yeah. But, uh, but still, I... I I don't know what it what it would feel like. Uh, certainly, as an older person, what it would feel like to be so burdened, to be so burdened with mm -hmm. um, the fear of all of this stuff. I think it's contingent to upon, and there's where the specificity comes into it. You know, what's your what's your university like? What's your department chair like? What's the person who assigns uh, sabbaticals like? You know, the, mm -hmm. it, it's all related to that. How much research do you have to do? How much publishing do you have to do? So the have-tos can be negotiated. I think that's mm -hmm. kind of what you're saying. Yeah. And you can still do the work uh, that works. <laughs> um, and, hide. and if you can't do it or if you find yourself in a situation where it's just impossible to do, then don't do it. Mm -hmm. People are too afraid to just walk away from it. But who told the story of somebody who worked really hard to get on a tenure track and then worked their ass off as a woman who left and then finally she left academia to open a pizza parlor because Yeah, oh, that's Shanine Peach. Yeah, that's yeah. right, right, yeah. right. So and she, she just had had enough. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of these indigenous women academics are doing that. And people like Sarah Ahmed, for instance, and, she, you know, she's, she's, not, she's not precarious, but she quit her job. Yeah. And, uh, and I think... Many of us took that as a really, it was a really welcome story, although it must have cost her a lot mm -hmm. to, to make that decision, um, to just say, I have to quit the profession. It, it is harming women, essentially. It's harming particularly students. Right. And, um, and I, but it, it, <clears throat> I, I, it wouldn't be an, a good, easy decision to make Especially for people who like the work that we do. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you if you love the work and you hate it, <laughs> then I think saying I'm going to leave alongside the, you know, inviting yourself to a, a somewhat more precarious situation in terms of your living. We're running out of time here, so yeah. I want to ask you one other question because it, 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 I hope it will kind of capsulize. What's that word? Encapsulate, encapsulate yeah. um, all of the things we've been talking about. Um, my own strategy with this, with institutions, but even with academe, has been to to work inside for a while, come out, mm -hmm. um, and then create structures that are you know temporary and and transparent and work both ways. It hasn't always worked, and it's not always the right thing to do. But that's just what I've chosen to do. And so I wonder if more of those kinds of, that calling them structures is even the wrong word, groupings, gatherings, creation of temporary spaces, temporary ways of mm -hmm. working that can both connect with community and influence institutions might be resting places for the refugees from academe and tie together many of the things you've been talking about, about the body and the stress within institutions, the hierarchies within institutions, but at the same time, create kind of contingent spaces yep. that people can occupy. And they're not going to make huge livings of $150,000, mm -hmm. but they're going to figure out ways to get by. And if that might be part of, <laughs> it's a bit of a leading question, the idea of a world without institutions, mm -hmm. these contingent spaces. I'll just give you the last word on that. Uh, well, I, I, th I think that though 
those spaces are important and it's an important idea and probably the reason that more people don't like myself for instance don't go there is because of the kind of work it takes as well mm-hmm. um David Garneau said something yesterday about being a footnote, mm. and um, that was nice actually. It and was it Lillian? This is something about being forgotten. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I I thought a lot about both of those because I uh, I realized that it's only in my last few years that I'm coming to terms with being forgotten, mm. um, and for the most part have always been a footnote. But I I don't like that. I don't care for it. And some of that is because I analyze it through gender and, you know, the, the race and stuff. But um, I, th- I think the people who engage in that kind of work, and I've learned a lot from indigenous friends and colleagues mm-hmm. this way, engage in that kind of work, either don't have an investment or have related, uh, have, in, have figured out their investment in creating those kinds of spaces. They've let go of the power power part right. you know this is mine right right um and i'm not getting credit for it or whatever and then the con- the contingency becomes what it it's about yeah um and creating space and making sure that it is about um relation and being observant to that and that's one, one thing i am very good at and that's why I'm, i think i'm a, i think of myself as a good teacher although i don't get good evaluations mm. um those but I do that institution. I do it in an institution. Okay. Right. Um, and the the sort of organizational part, and I'm also very introverted. So having to do the work of bringing, uh, making one of these contingent yeah. places. It, is finish the sentence. It's too much? It's too much. Too much. Uh-huh. But you just alluded to, and you're right to allude to it, that to do that in an institution is also hard work, and, and maybe in some ways more difficult work, because your daily, I mean, I'm speaking of my own work mm-hmm. right now, but my daily work is complicated, and I do a lot of things, but a part of it is raising money to mm-hmm. keep primary college going, but I'm not pushing against a huge bureaucracy that's pushing down on me. Mm-hmm. That only happens when I'm dealing with the institutions, and to some extent, I don't want to be uh, utopic, we can mitigate that. Yeah. As long as they give us enough and we can form enough partnerships, we can keep going. Yeah. And I think we can the, hear... The work in institutions is hard work, too. You just said so. It, it is hard work, and I think what makes it harder is our own... ourselves, in the sense that it takes a, it takes a long time, and not everyone can do it, I suppose, but it does take a long time just to... Um, there are certain kinds of oppression in an institution that are real. Sexual harassment, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and then there are others that I think we can push against, and increasingly so. Yeah. There are more women yeah. in positions of power. There are more people of color, indigenous people, and so forth. Um, and so one of the, one of the ways that I'm, I'm thinking of what you're talking yeah. about is from an elder... Andy Blackwater, uh, who recently died, was one of our advising elders on the indigenous strategy at Tapatope at the University of Calgary. And he gifted us the name, the Blackfoot word, which means, um, Tapatope means a place that you stop on a journey to rest and re-energize mm, mm, with people. Mm. Right? Mm. And he said that's ideally what an academic institution mm-hmm. should mm-hmm. be. That's what education mm-hmm. should be. So it's not a place that you stay at, right. and it's not a place that you um, have battles at. So he said if we're doing, we're, if indigenous people and non-indigenous people are doing this together in parallel path, and find, trying to find ethical spaces to do it mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. this is this mm. is what that space should be ide- ideally. Yeah. And it's directly contrary to the idea of accumulating knowledge yeah. and cultural capital and getting your degree so you can get ahead in the world. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think those kinds of things you're talking about are, are in fact, what, what education should be. But then as soon as we start getting into how it's funded and how it's um, 
what regular you know what province regulates what yeah kind of <laughs> i don't want to end with that thought <laughs> thank you very much Aruna. oh thank thanks you. for the questions chris yeah. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Aruna Shirvastava by Chris Creighton Kelly. I'm Isabel Mahalski, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trinda Laney, Rebecca Jeline, Isabel Mahalski, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>